Thank you. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Welcome, everyone. I want to remind you again that this weekend is a weekend we call a site-specific one. And so I'm particularly speaking to Latham and Greenbush on this weekend. So welcome everyone who's a wonderful part of the Greenbush congregation, as well as all of you are a part of Latham. Now, next weekend, I'm excited, we're going to jump right back into Luke's gospel. We're in a section right now uh, where I just believe it begins to accelerate as we begin to see some of the things that are happening as Jesus moves toward the cross, and that pivotal event gets closer and closer and closer, and it's amazing these vital lessons that we learn in Luke's gospel and so I invite you to continue to be a part of that. And if you've not been a part of it so far, jump in with us where we are. But today, I want us to look in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. This is a favorite passage for me. It was actually preached on the night that I really came to faith in Christ. I'd been struggling with that for a long time. And somehow, God used this particular passage to kind of nudge me, push me over the edge of faith. And so it's always been very special to me for that reason. And I think in a sense, in a sense, some of the kernels of this passage really kind of make up my life message, that God wants us to really maximize the potential that he has given us for his glory, for his glory. And so in just a moment, we're going to dive in there with the parable of the talents. Back in the early 1950s, no one had un ever run a mile in under four minutes. And even though thousands of dedicated runners had tried, that mark had proven impossible to crack. There were actually a lot of people beginning to think this will never be done. Believe it or not, medical doctors were actually writing serious articles in medical journals describing how that, that simply would push the body beyond its human limits. And so they were saying, it is, a, it is a ceiling, it is a lid that we will never break beyond. No one will ever run a mile in under four minutes. But there was one young English medical student named Roger Bannister who believed that it could be done. You see, Roger had been favored to win in the 1952 Olympics, but he'd finished a disappointing fourth place and thought about giving up running altogether to devote his full time to medical studies. But he had a coach who believed in him and expressed the belief that he could possibly be the first man ever to break four minutes in the mile. Well, that had been his dream for so long. And in consultation with his coach, he decided to give it one last big push. And so he continued month after month in grueling conditioning of the body, studying medicine eight hours a day, practicing, working out his body and all the routines that he had there, four hours a day left him little time for anything else. But Bannister continued to push forward, working hard, getting himself ready for peak performance. And finally the day came for his, him to try, at least, his impossible dream. The day broke cold and windy. The track was wet from five hours of rain earlier that morning. Certainly not ideal conditions 
for running. But Roger had resolved, today is the day. The guns sounded, and they were off. The first quarter was run in 57 and a half seconds. The half mile was run in 1 minute 58.2 seconds. Now, that was a very fast pace for those days. It, it continued throughout the third lap with only one lap remaining. The time read 3 minutes, 1 half second. The pace quickened down the back stretch, around the curve, sprinting for home. Later, in describing that moment, Roger said, my head was throbbing, my lungs were bursting, I thought for a brief moment, maybe I need to slow up and just come in to win. He could have really backed off the pace and still won the race. But he didn't want to just win the race. He wanted to break the record. He wanted to push beyond that in invisible barrier of human comfort zone. He wanted to go where no one had ever gone. And continuing to bear the tremendous pain and giving it everything he had, he continued to literally sprint toward the finish line. He hit the tape. Now, in those days, the clocks weren't in real time. They weren't as immediate as they are today. I understand in reading about this that it took a moment or two for the time to flash on the clock. But when it did, there was pandemonium because the time read three minutes, 59.4 seconds. The people in the stands that they just exploded with exuberance and awe and joy and wonderment that they were there to witness this. And they flowed down onto the track to welcome their new hero, Roger Bannister who had broken that barrier that some people said would never be broken. Now, here's what I find intriguing. And by the way, that story I just shared has been shared over and over again. It's been studied in psychological circles, and people have tried to figure out the power of when some people believe that something can't be done, and then somebody finally does it, and how it just opens up this avalanche of accomplishment after that. And sure enough... If you keep up with running at all, you know that immediately after that, it was broken again and again and again, and suddenly, people knew the body can indeed do what was previously thought impossible. But what few people knew that day was that Roger Bannister, just a few years earlier, had been a somewhat pudgy little boy that very few people saw any athletic promise in. Now, remember, he was in the UK, and that school system... So a little different than ours, but in what would have been junior high school years for him, he had a coach who said to him, son, you'd better find another sport. You're never going to make it in track and field. <laughs> but what no one could see was that in young Bannister's heart was a burning desire to do something that no one had ever done before. He was willing to work. He was willing to give it his best. And we would say, boy, was his ability multiplied. Boy, was he blessed. Wow. God really enabled him to reach that dream that his heart ached and, and longed for. 
Calvin Coolidge once said, there's nothing more common than unsuccessful people with talent. If there's even a kernel of truth in that, and I think there may be, I'd like to apply that to the church. You and me, brothers and sisters in the body of Jesus Christ, there may be nothing more common than people who truly love God, on their way to heaven, gifted by God, honestly want to please God, but they somehow fail to get plugged in exactly where God wants them to be. Could that be you today? Do you ever come to church and think, is this all there is? Do you ever go through your week and kind of throw up a few prayers to God and go through the motions maybe of devotion here and there and wonder, you know, shouldn't there be more passion than this? Shouldn't life be a little more exhilarating? Well, if you've if you've ever had those kinds of thoughts, or if you find yourself today not really living life with a capital L, I beg you, I implore you to please listen closely to today's message. I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to sit down, and we're going to unpack just a few little lessons that I believe we can take out of this classic parable from Jesus. George Washington, our first president, said, sometimes we have to come to the end of life before we realize the purpose of life. I hope that's not true of you today. I hope that God, if you haven't seized it already, that God will give you a crystal clear sense of his desire for you, that he has a plan and a purpose for you, and that you will, with joy, embrace that plan. Let me read the parable starting in verse 14 of Matthew 25. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants, and I personally believe that as in, is true in so many of Jesus' parables, not all of them, the master or the key protagonist in the story kind of represents God in the parable. I personally believe that's true here. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. And I love this commendation that the servant received. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. It seems here that the reward for good stewardship is, is often more responsibility more blessing, more impact that a person gets to make. Come and share your master's happiness. But notice, now in verse 24 and following, 
The parable up to this point has been somewhat joyous. It's been rather positive. It would make a good uh, speech at a pep rally or something. I mean, but the tone significantly shifts at this point. Then the man who'd received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And the tone of the parable continues in a rather strident, harsh way, it seems to me at least. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Now, why is it that just as in this parable we just read, some people just don't seem to really take off or do much productive for God, they may even kind of squander or sit on or just leave idle the talents, the abilities, the gifts, the amazing personality and the opportunities for service and growth that God gives them. Just not much happens with it. Why is that? And why is it that other people, on the other hand, just go from one grand experience with God, or at least it seems at times, after another, and sure enough, although they fall and stumble and sometimes badly, they get back up by God's grace and keep on going and God continues to bless and use their efforts. Why is that? For the moments we have remaining, I just want to unpack this a bit with you and make three statements that I, I believe we can stand on today and really, really feel are solid as we try to interpret this parable. Statement number one, God gifts every person with talents, abilities, gifts, opportunities for service and growth. He gifts every person. Now, I just want to pause there because I've been in ministry long enough to know that some of you don't really believe that. <laughs> you really don't. A kindergarten teacher was going around the class asking the children what they were thankful for, but the way she said it was kind of a little new agey or whatever. It, it was a little out there, and she, instead of saying God or something, she said, what are you thankful to Mother Nature for? And one beautiful little girl said, I'm thankful to her for my long black hair. So cute. Another little girl said, I'm thankful to her for my soft brown eyes. And then she turned to little not Johnny, who was not kneed, pigeon-toed, had buck teeth and freckles. She said, Johnny, what are you thankful to God for? She said, I, he said, I ain't thankful to him for nothing. He doggone near ruined me. Now, poor Johnny, uh, I hope he doesn't really feel that way, right? But I've been around ministry long enough to know that some people believe they must have been on vacation when God was giving out the gifts. 
Would you listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11? As each one, that means you, that means me, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him or her do so by the strength which God supplies. And why do we do it? It even gives us the answer. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now here's the deal I want you to take away on this point before we quickly move on. It's not what you've been given by God, but it's what you do with what you've been given that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference in the world. It really does. See, I'm never going to be held responsible or called to give an account for Albert Einstein's brains because I don't have them. Just mine. Hallelujah. I'm never going to be called to account for your gifts nor will you ever be for mine, but we are accountable for what God has given us. And so that's the thing I want you to nail down in your soul today. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has gifted you, and I just want to tell you, from my own experience as well as observing many, many other followers, there's something that happens. It's like a switch that just gets flipped on when people discover how God has wired them and they really begin to use that in ministry for him. It's like a light comes on, man. They often even begin to glow. I mean, there is this effervescence to life. And yeah, it may wane. And yeah, the journey is long, as we said last week. But make no mistake, if you're finding the Christian life a little bit insipid, it may be because you've not really gotten plugged in yet to where God really wants you to be. So just think about that. But quickly, the second statement I would make here is that we all have our own excuses, our own reasons for doing what we do with what we've been given. Let me just say it once more. We all have our own excuses or reasons for doing what we do with what we've been given. So why was it that this one talent man in the story just kind of bombed out here in a major way. Well, I think the text may give us a few hints. In verse 26, if you'll look back at that, the master now, now I think he's a pretty good source, the master, who I believe represents God, says, you wicked slave. Now, I, I can't linger here, but I inevitably, through the years, when I a few times have gone to this passage, I usually get an email or a few from people going, what about the ending of that? Isn't that ending kind of weird? I mean, doesn't that seem a bit harsh? And wait a minute, what theology are we supposed to take away with this? So I want to spend about two minutes dealing with it, and then I won't come back to that again, and hopefully I can save you an email, okay? <laughs> this is not teaching that we're saved by being good stewards of God's gifts. I don't believe it's teaching that at all. That would be contrary to an entire corpus of biblical material that teaches we are saved by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I hope that's clear 
Hope, hope you get that. I could take you to passage after, but we take an hour looking at just passage after passage that teaches that we're saved not by our works, not by good decisions we made uh, about stewarding our gifts or something like that, or not how hard we worked for God. We're saved by his amazing grace through faith, okay? Now, for the master, a good source, to say you're wicked, I believe, says something about the heart condition of this servant. I, I believe that the other two show evidence of genuine faith, genuine trust, if you want to put it that way. And they did what people who have a genuine, vibrant, authentic, saving relationship with the master do. They're very interested in using what he's given them. They are. Because they've got that relationship. They know the Father's heart. They know what the Master's all about. And they're excited about using it. But I notice, it seems to me, that people who misunderstand God or have these wacky, erroneous views about God often have wacky, erroneous views about how a person is saved. So it could be that the guy's motivation is all wrong. I mean, he does say... I knew you to be a hard man. Well, I would say the master, at least in this setting, is not a hard man. He's a pretty loving, gracious man. My goodness, he goes away and he trusts these guys. He puts them in charge. He's good to them. He gives them more responsibility and blessings when they do well with what they got. I'd say he's anything but hard there, honestly. This guy shows evidence of one who doesn't have a vital trust faith in the master and often people who don't have that relationship and aren't trusting God by faith often they don't care that much about being good stewards of his gifts in fact I would say that that's pretty much the norm and often they believe that God's kingdom system is a quid pro quo Hey, God, I do a few good things for you. I put a little money in the plate. I do a nice deed and help a dear old lady across the road. You'll let me into heaven, right? You'd be amazed how many people believe that's God's system. So if that's what you think, please divest yourself of that belief that has nothing to do with real salvation. That is not what the Bible teaches. And let's move on now. So that's all I want to say about that. Uh, I guess I'm like Forrest Gump here. That's all I got to say about that, right? So I'm going to move on. A second possible reason is that he might have just been downright lazy. In fact, in verse 26 again, the master, again, I take it as what he's speaking is right on, spot on, true, because he represents God, you wicked, lazy uh, servant. Not only is your heart motivation all wrong, but... You frankly just can't get off the dime here. You're lazy. Now, since I know everybody struggles with that, I'll just quickly move on off of that, right? But you know what? I believe that there are obvious major sins that will keep people from being used greatly by God. Let's just try a few out. Maybe adultery, maybe murder, maybe Thievery, maybe slander, maybe gluttony, maybe on and on, right? But you know what? According to the biblical record, all of those things can be overcome and forgiven and, 
In fact, the Bible is full of examples of people who are guilty of these sins that we consider these major showstoppers when it comes to God using you, and yet they received God's forgiveness and went right on. I mean, just think about Moses and David and Samson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and God used them in a huge way. How about the Apostle Paul? I mean, the list is huge. Yes, sometimes those major biggies that we talk about can keep us from being effective for God if we don't move beyond them. But I'll tell you something that I think gets a lot more people, and that's good old downright laziness. The writer of Proverbs says in chapter 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, and be wise. And it talks about the industriousness of the ant who have no, having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. If there's any book that puts a great emphasis upon effort, industriousness to serve God, it's the Bible. And hard work is not only extolled as a great practice and virtue, but it is greatly rewarded. It could be that this guy was just flat out lazy, but I believe his biggest problem was what he admitted in verse 25. Did you see that? It's kind of interesting. In verse 25, out of his own mouth, he says, so I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what belongs to you. I was afraid. I believe, I believe that fear incarcerates more people than perhaps anything else and holds us back from really becoming all God designed us to be. It happens all the time. It, your marriage isn't where it should be, but you're afraid that if you really address it, that, well, things might get worse. And so I'm, I'm just going to kind of sit here and hold my cards, as it were, tight and see what happens. So you're unwilling to get out of your comfort zone, and it usually doesn't get better. It's like a garden untended. It usually gets worse. Or you hear about the joys and the rewards of those who are generous for God and give freely of their resources. And you go, ah, I, I, that just, that, I'm just afraid of that. I'm not sure I can really trust that. Yeah, I know there's a bunch of promises about that in the Bible. But, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I just never tried it. And I'm just not sure. I'm afraid, to be quite honest with you. And so you allow that fear to hold you back. Some of you have been gifted by God to be teachers or small group leaders or amazing servants of God in all kinds of capacities, but, but there's fear. There's this insecurity, but what if I fail? What if I fall flat on my face? What if people laugh? What if my group doesn't grow? What if I say something in my Bible study that's theologically wrong and somebody calls me on it? What if I go share my faith and somebody raises some question that I don't have an answer to? And on and on and on it goes. And we as humans, it's just the way we are. So many of us just allow that fear to keep us in the comfort zone. 
and we don't push beyond the limits. And sadly, often we go for years and years, even decades in the Christian journey, and we see that as a lid that can never be broken through. It becomes like our own four-minute barrier. We think it'll never be done. I'll never be used by God the way I wish I could be. Dear, dear friend, dear brother or sister in Christ, if that's what you think, I, I think you're dead wrong. I think God has so much for you. and I want it for you, but he wants it for you even more. And I know what it's like to have those insecurities. I have my own list of them. But I believe that there are times when we just need to kind of claim 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Say, God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And we need to just kind of get in the face of our insecurity or of the devil or of our nemesis, and we need to just go there for God. Teddy Roosevelt once said something, I think this is an amazing quote. He said, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. I just don't want to be that guy. And I hope you don't want to be that woman or man that just, you know what, just because of some fear, insecurity, you will look back one day and go, wow, all that God could have done through me for his glory. And I let fear hold me back. But I want to come now to what I believe is a final thing we can say. What have we said? That we've all been gifted by God. We have a personality from him, spiritual gifts, passions, abilities. And he's given us that and he wants us to use it for his glory. All of us have been gifted. And if you haven't found what your gifting or your niche is, wow, that ought to be a major goal in the next few months. The second thing we've said is we all have our own reasons or excuses, if you will, for doing what we do with what we've been given. But here's the final point. And it's really from this that we chose the title this week, Getting Out of My Comfort Zone. Because here it is. God wants us to get out of our comfort zone and take some appropriate risk for him. He wants us to get out of our comfort zone and take some appropriate risk for him. Now, let, let's defuse the straw man. Let's knock him down right up front. We're not talking about foolish risk. We're not talking about testing God, jumping off pinnacles of temples. We're not talking about doing stupid things. We're not talking about doing silly things for God. Uh, that's not, the Bible consistently condemns that kind of behavior. What we're talking about is when God nudges you by his spirit that you say, yes, Lord, yes, I will. And although I'm afraid, I'm going to step out. I'm going to get out of my comfort zone for you. And you say, Pastor X, I've read this parable all my life. Where do you possibly get this thing about taking risk from that parable? Well, I think not only does the text itself show that, because to invest was risky. It is, and it always has been, it still is today. 
But I think the major reason we say that is what we read in the Mishnah, this Jewish document that has these amazing teachings of the rabbis in Jesus' day and later. And the rabbis had a parable. And I think to get the essence of what Jesus is saying here, it's important, it's helpful at least, helpful to know what the rabbis were teaching. Here's what they taught. In the rabbi's parable, three men each received one coin. Two of them went out and risked it by investing. The other one played it safe and kept it. Now, you'll admit, up to that point, the rabbi's parable is very similar to the one Jesus taught. Ah, but the rabbi's parable had a radically different ending. In the popular rabbinic parable of Jesus' day, the man who played it safe, stayed in his comfort zone, didn't take any risk, was commended by the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the two who risked it received capital punishment. They were executed. Jesus came along knowing his hearers had heard that parable. And he said, you guys have got it all wrong. Living in my kingdom involves taking some appropriate risk, not just always playing it safe. Now, can we have a moment of candor and brutal honesty? Is there really anybody who feels comfortable with that? I mean, boy, I don't. I'll be the first to admit I don't. I'm not the kind of guy like in Abraham when God says, hey, I want you to pack up the wife and the kids in the minivan. Hey, I want you to go cross country to this place. Oh, God, where, God, where are we going? This is, this is really uncomfortable. This is scary. Oh, I'll show you. Yeah, right. That's not the way I like to live. I like to kind of know the future. I like to kind of have it mapped out. I'm not the kind of guy like a Gideon who would take 300 men and attack armies of tens of thousands. That's too much out of the comfort zone. I'm not like a young David who would take a slingshot and five smooth stones and dare to approach a giant. Are you kidding me? Some things just don't make sense, and yet it was God was right in the middle of all of those things. Leading, guiding, nudging, showing the way. And here's my question for you. As we land this plane today, what would your life what would my life, what would our church's life look like if we began to take this teaching seriously? Not foolish risks, not silly stuff. Get, no, get that out of your mind. That's not what anybody's talking about here. We're talking about God-shaped risks that God is guiding us into. What would it look like, college students, on your university campus? Ooh, is that going to feel awkward or what? When you begin to try to broach some spiritual conversations, what would it look like? CEOs and corporate heads, when you begin to be a little more robust about your faith around the office, will some eyebrows get raised? When people come to know your values and begin to see that you value the Lord above everything else, what would that mean? What would that do? What would that do on your sports team? If your teammates, your coach, or your players, if you're the coach, began to see what's really most important to you in this life and see you begin to get out of your comfort zone, 
What would happen down in that needy area of your city where there's so many broken lives? Well, you got out of your comfort zone and began to go there and serve in Jesus' name. What would it look like in your small group as you literally are trying to shepherd these people for the glory of God and help them grow in their journey? What would that look like? Oh, I believe God would build a magnetism around you that would be unbelievable. I believe God would build an effervescent attraction around this church or any church that would take him seriously on this that would be so magnetic, people would be drawn to Jesus Christ. Last week, I referenced the story from the old classic movie, Chariots of Fire. I'm going to hit you with another one. What a great, great story, the life of Eric Little. It's toward the end of the movie, and Eric Little and his nemesis, I think we could say, is a man named Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams is favored to win the 100-yard dash in the Olympic Games. But he's so uptight. Even though he's won all of his qualifying heats, he is on pins and needles before the race because he says, I have only 10 seconds in which to prove the reason for my existence. And even then, I'm not sure I will. Compare, compare that attitude to that of Eric Little, this man who ran exuberantly for God, who later became a missionary to China and literally gave his life all out for Jesus Christ on that mission field. His sister Jenny was concerned that Eric was actually spending too much time running and not enough time with the things of God. And she let him know. <laughs> he lovingly took his sister by the shoulders, looked her in the eye and said, Jenny... God has made me for a purpose, for China. But he's also made me fast. <laughs> and when I run, I feel his pleasure. When God looks at the race that you're running today, dear friend, what does he feel? Are you getting the vibe of a well done, good and faithful servant. Hey, wow, you're really in the game. Hey, wow, you are really engaged. You're really taking what I gave you and you're using it. Or, or, or would you have to give a different story today? You know what? I, I, I just haven't stepped up. I urge you. I could tell you my own story. I could tell you story after story. It makes so much difference in your daily joy when you know that you're involved in something that's making a grand difference in this world. May we be that kind of people, and may we do it for the glory of God. Father, I think I just heard the gun sound for some people. The gun sounded, and may they be off in this race, off using the gifts, the abilities, the opportunities for service and growth that you gave to them. Thank you for this powerful parable that Jesus, our Lord, told. You've used it to change my life in so many ways. Would you bless it today to change many others? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor X.